I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light, and these are weekly commentaries from the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita written by Swami Kriyananda. And this week's reading is entitled, How Devotees Rise. And this is week 24. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. Last week, we asked the question, why do devotees fall? And we considered the downfall of Judas in this context. Jesus, in answer to Judas's criticism for allowing Mary to rub his feet with spikenard, a very costly ointment, said, the poor Always ye have with ye with you, but me ye have not always. Jesus is saying here that there is one supreme injustice that needs eradication. Poverty, yes, but not of a material kind. Poverty in a spiritual sense. Divine blessings are not common in this world. They are extraordinary. When they come, we should give them priority above every other consideration. Never allow a moment of inner joy, for instance, to be set aside for lesser duties. Divine attunement is our highest priority. As Lahiri Mahashai, the guru of Yogananda's guru, said, to listen to the heart's inner sound, Om, which issues from the very center of our being, is man's highest duty. Mary, on this occasion, was not communing in inner silence with Christ's spirit, as she had been when Martha urged that she be reproached by Jesus for not helping out in the kitchen. Mary this time was serving outwardly, but in a very different spirit, from the restless fussing for which Jesus had reprimanded her sister, Martha. Those who see a radical difference between the paths of action and meditation should understand this distinction. To serve in the right spirit is necessary, for only thereby can we overcome our karmic tendencies toward restless activity. The important thing is that that spirit be always inwardly focused, that in everything we do, we act in loving service to the Lord. Therefore, the Bhagavad Gita says in the third chapter, the state of freedom from action, that is, of eternal rest in the spirit, cannot be achieved without action. No one, by mere renunciation and outward non-involvement, can attain perfection. Whenever the Spirit of God descends upon you, however, remember the words of Jesus, Me ye have not always with you. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om.
morning, everyone. I, too, would like to welcome you to Sunday service. All of you here today and those viewing online, including Mantra Devi. I'll start with uh, a reading from Whispers. Demand for quickening activity. Let the waves of thy power dance on the river of my activity. As thou art intelligently busy in making atoms, flowers, universes, so teach me to be cheerfully busy always. Thou art ever busy and yet eternally smiling through joyous hearts. Bless me that I may wear thine unfading smile while working in the factory of life. In a way, that's kind of a commandment God is giving us. As it says in the Gita, we are unable to actually go into a state of inaction completely. Deep meditation is a kind of activity where we're tuning into God, drawing that divine presence within us, and then putting it into everything we do, which would be more outward activity. So today, our topic is how devotees rise. Last week, as Maria stated, it was how devotees fall. So I got the longer straw on that. <laughs> Able to talk about this. Um, in a nutshell, through exerting our will, through the scientific techniques of yoga and meditation that Master has given us, devotion, essential, attunement with God and Guru, drawing their grace, we rise. However, it's not always that easy, is it? It's not simple. So there are one, there's one word, four letters, that makes it difficult. What's the problem? Life. <laughs> Life is the problem. That's not how we're taught to look at it, but life's not always smooth, is it? We have this whole bundle and sort of package of pre- and postnatal karma that we're dealing with, everything we came in with in this incarnation. And they say, what, when a child by three years old, he's already has much of his consciousness imbued by the parents and the environment that, that from the womb and the home. And then a few years after that, from the, the development of school or whatever, uh, more and more of it's set. And then we spend the rest of that incarnation trying to correct it. So I grew up uh, Italian and uh, in an Italian home. And we were on a first-name basis with some of the, the Italian uh, performers like Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett and uh, others, Dean Martin. So when Frankie was going to be on that night, we had to give over to my mother watching TV because he was going to perform. But anyway, I bring it up because he sang a song that I always kind of remember. You know, you could draw on these, these, the past like this and at times. And one he made famous was That's Life. Now, I have to, uh, you know, 
uh, introduce it such because nowadays we have a lot of youth with us. They, I, I, at times I think they're going to know these things and they don't. And they've, <laughs> they've never heard of things that we all really know. And what, what? You, don't, you don't know that? Also now that it's a global work, those viewing online, international communities, they probably don't even know who Frank Sinatra is. But anyway, so he sang this song, That's Life. That's life. That's what the people say. Riding high in April, shot down in May. <laughs> but I know I'm going to change that tune when I'm back on top in June. <laughs> I love that song. Isn't that life? It's like, that's duality, you know, and Frankie was singing it. That's duality. So the secret of the spiritual life is really uh, balance. That's the secret of the spiritual life, finding balance in this world, in, in the, the influence of Maya on everything, just wanting everything to go outward, keeping it topsy-turvy, and so on. But for us, we need to be centered in ourselves in a state of balance. So it was the very teaching started with Babaji to Lahiri for this whole manifestation of this, this uh, work where Babaji, when he called him to uh, the Himalayas in, on Drangiri Mountain in that cave where he said, um, he said, a sweet new breath will penetrate the arid hearts of worldly men. From your balanced life, they will understand that liberation is dependent on inner rather than outer renunciations. From your balanced life, they will understand that liberation is determined or dependent on inner rather than outer renunciations. Now, that was important going in, again, coming from the Indian culture where there were many extremes. And I'm going to read to you from songs of Kabir, just a few. Kabir was a medieval saint that was, according to Master, uh, initiated in Kriya by Babaji. And he was, lived in the 1600s. He was a great, great saint. When he died, he had equal followers of Mohammedans and Hindus. And when he died, they were arguing over what they should do with his remains. Because the Muslim tradition is to bury the person, and the Hindu is to cremate. So they were arguing. So he came out of his sleep of death, and he said, take half of me and bury it take the other half and cremate it, <laughs> finding a balance. So when they opened the coffin and he disappeared, and when they opened the coffin, there was nothing but flowers there. So they took half of the flowers, the Muslims, and buried them, and the rest of the flowers, maybe they were thrown in the Ganga, I don't know. But at any rate, and you're going to get a chuckle from this, because this is another time, another era. But what he's saying essentially, uh, and this being an earlier incarnation of Lahiri with the balanced life and not outer forms of renunciation. 
He says, if by roaming around naked, you can find God, then all the forest animals should have been saved. And these are slokas to be sung. Why go naked or wear skins when you can't see Ram in your own heart? If by shaving your head, you gain spiritual fulfillment, why aren't all the sleep, why aren't all the sheep saved? Kabir says, listen, O men, my brothers, whoever receives salvation without Ram's name. Those ritually bathing day and night are like frogs in water. Without love for Ram's name in their hearts, they are all in the power of delusion. The learned read all the four Vedas, but only sages will acquire solace in this sea of affliction. Kabir says, why are you pondering so deeply? Give up everything and drink the best of nectars. What use is prayer, penance, worship when your heart loves another? Religious practices tie people down with self-pride. They all get together and worship stone. Kabir says, I found him through devotion. By becoming simple-hearted, I met our Lord. So, Master said that it is not how we live outwardly, but how we live inwardly. It's not how we live outwardly, it's how we live inwardly. And how we live inwardly will be infused in everything we do. The, you know, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, he goes on further to say that yoga is not for one who, uh, who eats too much, not for one who sleeps too much, or who too much, not for one who too much eats, not for one who too much fasts, not for one who too much sleeps, and not for one who wears his life force away in vigils. That to be moderate in eating, resting, and sport. And that's what the Gita teaches. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Because when you look at the lives of the saints and masters, they appear to be anything but moderate. Now what we're talking about is in this balance, because if you get too imbalanced, it leads to fanaticism in one way or another. Let's say in terms of will. If you are so totally uh, thinking of all of the willpower you needed to put in everything without balancing it with devotion, that would be imbalanced. So the masters, the saints, when we view their lives, we think, well, we want to aspire to be that way. Ananamoyima, when master met her in, in India, he wanted to bring her back, but his her devotees said, oh, they were, they were concerned because they didn't want to lose their guru to the West, even for a moment. And they said, we, 20 of us have to be with her at all times. And that we, she takes no notice of what she eats and that we have to feed her with our own hands. Now, if not, she wouldn't have eaten. And that doesn't sound very balanced, does it? Where's the three square meals a day? <laughs> also, 
um, in uh, Therese Neumann. Master met her in Bavaria. She said she lived on divine light and ate a simple, small, consecrated host each day. That's all she ate. Okay, we could aspire towards that. Swami, or Sadhu Haridas, Swami mentions in some talk that uh, he buried himself for 40 days to prove that, you know, he's beyond this body and the confines and the dictates of the, this material world. Master himself slept two hours a night. And even then, he probably wasn't sleeping as we think of it. He was still sort of half in this world and half out in samadhi, replenishing himself. But he was always aware of his environment and doing his work even then when others slept. All these, these examples don't seem very balanced. If we were to aspire too quickly to emulate them or imitate them in these ways, it would be fanatical for us or imbalanced. The definition of fanatical or fanaticism is imbalance. And the saints and masters are anything but imbalanced. Now when you take a flywheel, a flywheel that is spinning... If it's out of balance, you'd hardly notice if it was spinning kind of slowly. But if that fly will begin spinning faster and faster and faster, you would notice it. And if it went on and on, it would eventually fly apart and be destroyed. A fly will perfectly centered, at perfectly balanced at its point of center. It could spin at enormous speeds and keep going indefinitely and with no damage. So for us, we have our sadhana, we have our techniques of meditation, we know the importance of devotion, otherwise it would get dry and technique-oriented, but we need to find that balance. Otherwise, we will not be able to rise. That's how we rise, seeking the balance of wherever we are at this moment, and then going for that elevation as we can handle more and more these powers, these abilities that come when we are tuned into our soul, the power of our soul, which is infinite, and then putting that into what we do. So we are cautioned. Master cautions. There was, Swami talks about this one devotee at Mount Washington where he had tremendous willpower, tremendous willpower. And he put that willpower into everything he did, into all his activity. He meditated 40 days, or I'm sorry, 40 hours. That's Swami Sadhu Haridas. <laughs> he, he meditated for 40 hours once with that kind of intensity. But you know, he didn't end up staying. He, he said he just wasn't finding it. He wasn't evolving. Swami said, if he would have just balanced that with a little bit more devotion, with more heart quality, that he would have continued. He certainly wouldn't have left the ashram and stayed with the guru. And Swami had that tendency as well. He was very strong-willed. 
and he had that kind of intensity of focus and concentration. But Master saved them from that. He said that uh, it's uh, depicted sweetly in the, the, uh, the movie, The Answer, where he was saying, well, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying as hard as I can. And Master said, you're trying too hard. He goes, you need to balance it with devotion. Devotion is the essential ingredient in our spiritual life. So he took that to heart. And then Master gave him some writing assignments or editing assignments for the evening. And there again he thought, editing, writing, I came here to meditate. That's what we're supposed to do in the ashram. That's what we're supposed to do to find God. But Master could see that tendency in him, the blessings of a, of a guru. And he helped him adjust that and become more balanced. If we can seek this kind of balance, then we will be growing in leaps and bounds, and we will be able to do more and more in our spiritual life and in the world around us. Master gives us a beautiful talk on if you went into a room and you saw a person with a little peanut-sized head and a big balloon body and, and with another with the, the arm of a sandow, this big arm on a little shrunken trunk, he says that would be very humorous or pathetic depending on your mood. <laughs> he says, if you had the ability to see people's mental, all of us look very normal, for the most part, <laughs> in our physical bodies. He said, but if you can see, the, you have the ability to see your, your mental body, which a guru can. He says, some people, if reason was your head, and uh, feeling and senses were your your torso or trunk, and your legs and arms were your will. He said, we would see people with very shrunken heads, you know, without much reason, wisdom. And their, their torso might be huge and expanded because they're heavy into more sense and uh, feeling or emotion, let's say. Or they had a huge head because they are so or intellectual, but their trunk is shrunken because they haven't developed any of their heart quality and their feelings. Or if both of those were fine, they might have legs shrunken with no will, with no willpower developed. So he said to become a balanced human being, this is why we have, when he first came, Yogananda, he taught Raja Yoga because Raja Yoga is that, that uh, royal yoga that has these different aspects to it to, to develop the whole person, service and devotion and uh, wisdom, but meditation being at its foundation. So this is what he taught, and then bringing out Kriya Yoga, essentially the technique of this age that will give salvation very quickly. And we're very blessed to be in this room. We're very blessed to be aware of these, these teachings, be aware of this lineage of, of masters and that we can draw on these teachings because there are many teachings out there and they're not always so balanced. And, and more power to them, and I'm not here to judge or criticize other paths, but I know that this one is solid, brought by a lineage of avatars and this teaching 
and the techniques we've been taught and with the emphasis on the, the heart that you can't take a single step, as we know, without first awakening the heart's natural love. And that is what we infuse into everything. So this Mary-Martha uh, parable or story that we review annually, and I hate to keep talking about Martha, but she didn't have it right. But I'm sure, just as Judas is now liberated, and whatever Martha did, in no way compared with Judas, I'm sure she's free now too. But giving us this beautiful teaching of balance where Mary and Martha, Mary, the, the, um, the qualities of inner communion and the heart, and the important thing is drawing on that grace, drawing on Master's presence that's around us and in us all the time. And then Martha taking it out into activity, but not losing our center. And those two are necessary because it says in the Gita, we cannot get there by inaction. We have to act. And as you know, this community is full of activity. Just coming through the Moksha Mandir event was so extremely powerful for all of us. I feel it, all of us feel it, it raised this community and the, and the level of consciousness and the, and the power of the vibration that's emanating out from here and all over every center, wherever that point is, that has this ray all over, the, all over the world. There was this elevation that happened. However, afterwards, we were a bit fatigued, weren't we? <laughs> we were fatigued, but we were fatigued at a higher level. And, and when, that fatigue, when that fatigue sort of lessened, we were still there, weren't we? I know all of you feel that. It's the power that that event had. And we can feel Swami with us at all times. Swami himself, he's our teacher, our guru. He's like looking down at us saying, I'm with you. I'm helping you. Draw on me. Because the example of his life was very busy. He was very, and we could say, not quite balanced in one sense. If you view it from outer renunciation or from outer, an outer criteria, from a worldly standpoint, he, he, everything he created, everything he accomplished at one time or another was overcoming some extreme physical uh, discomfort or condition. His hips alone that were just sort of, when he finally got them fixed, it was just bone on bone. And it, it wore away... A, some portion of his hips, a quarter inch, half inch. And you'd never know it. You would never know it. Someone that was, when he was writing Cities of Light and the power went out, he had it all done and he lost it all. Now anyone else would, I'm going to go get a cup of tea and sort of probably fall into a mood, you know. Why did this happen? I'm serving God. This, is, this, is, this isn't right, you know. Power came back on. He switched it on and he wrote it again. Just like that. Amazing. Amazing example of that kind of energy. But he was always centered in himself. 
And that's how you can, we can do extreme things. Because that's what we want to do, don't we? We're, we're told we all incarnated now for a reason, particularly on this path, because we want to be light bearers. We want to bring the light into this world that is so much needed in this transition into Dwapara Yuga, which is the world is so totally a mess. If you look at it, it's hard to even watch the news, isn't it? It's like there's what global warming, um, deteriorating financial insecurity globally. There's earthquakes and, and volcanoes and hurricanes and, and on and on. Floods. People are in fear. And, and now, more than ever, we could do our part, maybe going there if, it's, if you feel to, but right here and right now, when we can get in that point, that center point within our own being, and find that peace and that joy and that calmness, and it emanates out from each and every one of us with the power of our masters behind us, we can tip it. We can tip it. We can tip the scales of what's going on right now. We can do our part and bring in the light because it's so very much needed. And Master said, a lot of these things that are happening don't have to happen. They don't need to happen. They're, they're, they're destined to happen unless the light is brought in. And, and they, but they can be curtailed. They can be um, avoided. And that's what we can do. So it is microcosmically our own attention to our sadhana and trying to uh, live it in a high spiritual way as we can so that we evolve and, and get there someday. Macrocosmically, it's our duty to bring in the light. And I'll, I'll end with um, from Rajasi Janakananda. He shared this story. It was two years, two or three years after Master's passing. He was uh, sleeping and it was on Master's birthday and he felt uh, a divine presence. It was two or three in the morning. And there Lahiri Mahashai was appearing to him in a blazing light. And this is interesting because he said, more bright than usual. <laughs> okay, so this, is a, this happens. And then after him was Sri Teshwar, Babaji, and then Master. They all came to him. And Master took him by the hand and he brought him up and out of the body and he was bringing him in this other realm. And he was enveloped by this light. And together, they were doing this beautiful work. And he said that Master's very busy in this other world, just as he was here on this plane. And he's still busy here too, energetically, right? Obviously. But I was thinking, wow, that would be nice. And that is what I want. I'm sure that's what you want. If we can stay the course, find the balance, and rise, not slowly necessarily, but steadily, and stay, stay on track. The masters are rooting for us. They want us to. 
It's, and we can with their power behind us and their grace.